0: Take a network break help yourself to a virtual donut as we try to separate some signal from the tech news noise we're talking today about updates juniper's appster automation software a significant microsoft outage a woeful financial result from intel and more we don't have be ads today but do stay tuned for a sponsored tech bites conversation about security reconnaissance with sponsor fortinet we're going to drill into 40 recon this is a service that can provide critical information personalized for your organization about potential threats to company assets employees and customers uh, and if you like Network Break, check out our other podcast. They include Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6, Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Heavy Strategy, and our latest show, Kubernetes Unpacked, with nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net.
1: Yeah, this week is a lot of financial news um, and news worth talking about. So if financial news doesn't necessarily float your boat, but some of this news is actually quite significant and actually affects products and products that you can buy. So it's very interesting in terms of just setting the background in which the vendors are on this week. So apologies for that if there's too much financial news ahead of
0: time. Yeah, but that's what we had and that's what we found. So uh, I guess you can skip ahead if you don't like it, but uh, just fair warning. Fair warning, yeah. (laughs) All right, we'll start off, though, with some product news. Juniper Networks has announced upgrades to its AppStra data center automation and orchestration software. The latest update extends support for additional network devices and network OSs from Cisco, Arista, and Dell, and it can integrate with VMware's NSXT to automate VLAN deployments and validate configurations. It's also added support for more Juniper data center gear in the ACX and PTX lines.
1: Yeah, I think the key part I took away from this, Drew, was that AppStra sales are up 170%, which is pretty amazing in the current environment when everybody's running around saying, Enterprise IT is falling, there's a recession coming, and you know the end of the world is nigh, and so forth and so on. But uh, Juniper's been out there trying to you know, get more AppStra customers for the data center, and they've been quite successful. 170%, somebody's hit their target, and they're going to be making buku bucks when bonus time is coming around. Um, keep in mind that Juniper only acquired AppStra in January 2020. That's two years ago. And I think you and I stated, if memory serves me correctly, that the synergy was there. And that most importantly, Abstra is a viable competitor to Cisco's ACI, particularly. Um, Arista's been very slow to get into the SDN thing. They've now come out with their cloud vision and they're starting to iterate more rapidly around that. Well, I think Arista would
0: say, wait, no, we've had cloud vision for years, way before Abstra. We've been there, we've been there. But I think uh, Abstra has taken it a little further than... I think, what Arista would say they could do with Cloud Vision. Well,
1: Cloud Vision was doing monitoring first and then not really configuration. You know, it was doing... You know, if you're doing configuration backups, that was about it. And then it's starting to get into the intent-based mm, stuff now, uh-huh. long after Appstra, you know, had been around and even long after Appstra had been part of. The other notable thing about Appstra is not only is it, um, you know, something that customers want, but I think also it's multi-vendor. It works with white box, It works with multiple different types of NOSs in addition to Juniper's hardware. So you can use the Juniper hardware that's got the custom ASICs that Juniper has. You can use Juniper hardware with the Broadcoms. You can wa- use Whitebox and any white box NOS that you want, even Sonic and, and you know all the others as well. And I think that has been very attractive during the supply chain issues that we saw, especially last year, where customers could at least use this on something else, so they could at least get something going. And I keep hearing more and more stories where people who are using Cisco ACI and reasonably unhappy with it have been able to switch in a single weekend to an AppStra deployment keeping the Cisco hardware and no change to the cabling. So they literally walk in, pull out the, you know, disconnect the ACI and put the Abstra over the top and then have a working config on Monday morning sort of thing. Um, And I think that is a pretty big deal. Um, So that's probably the success factor around Abstra that I think is contributing.
0: Uh, Could be, could be. I mean, I think first thing, Abstra, when Juniper acquired it, you know, Juniper did say, we're going to make sure we continue to keep the fact that it's a multi-vendor product, multi-vendor, which I think was smart. it's it, because that's what I think Juniper should be doing. Second. Uh, Almost prescient, really. Right. Did they predict the supply chain problems, right? What <laughs> did they know that we didn't? <laughs> um, but the, my my thing on Juniper, uh, and I mean making it a harder platform to sell, is that um, when it first came out, they were very clear about, it will work on these reference designs and these reference designs only. And it was essentially, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a greenfield product. They're taking steps to change that with their Freeform release, which came out uh, in September of 2022 which gives you a little bit more flexibility, uh, but there are still, I think, constraints to getting Appstra on board in your environment, particularly a brownfield environment. But mm. I'm really curious to know, yeah, how they managed to get 170% jump in sales maybe, uh, or customers, not sales, but customers, customer base grew 170%. Uh, wondering if maybe it was starting from a low number and so they can claim some boost there, but would love to hear about what's happening with Cisco ACI if they are seeing replacements. Because, again, with these yeah. reference design issues, I don't know if they could just walk in and replace it, but mm. maybe they're doing things I don't know.
1: Well, Cisco ACI has been very successful. Cisco has been able to leverage relationships and partnerships with resellers to get it into customers. But I haven't met too many customers who are pleased with it. And, of course... You know, customers who are pleased with it are probably not saying too much. Customers who aren't probably so you tend to hear <laughs> unhappy
0: people tend to make more noise. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. But I I also think that Juniper's got a good story here around Mist AI about this AI ops story. They've already got well they've already been out at it for three or four years now, and they're saying that it'll be coming to Abstra at some point. That's a much that's a really good future pitch. So if you're looking at a strategy around your data center and you're looking to get AI ops into the into the data center. Juniper's got a compelling vision there that I think a lot of other companies don't at this particular point in time. Certainly not Cisco or Arista that I'm aware yeah, of. Yeah,
0: at this point, uh, Mist AI is a separate bucket from Juniper Appster. They're taking different approaches uh, to what they're doing with the network, but I could see a convergence coming at some point that would make sense. And yeah, Juniper I feel like has been out in front of the AI ops space, although folks are catching yeah, up. Yeah,
1: yeah. Appster doesn't have Mist AI, no. but it could. Like it's it's you could make that pitch and it'd be believable. It's not like a nonsensical. Right. <laughs> right. You know, salesman's just saying it to get the deal type yes. hey, thing,
0: doesn't <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Which why, that would never happen. Never happen. Never. <laughs> all right, links in the show notes. If you want to read it more, we'll move on. Uh, there was a widespread outage of Microsoft Cloud products, including Azure, Teams, and Outlook. It affected users all over the world. The full outage lasted approximately two hours, though intermittent con- intermittent connectivity issues continued for almost five hours. Uh, there was a preliminary incident report from Microsoft. It says that a a plan change to an IP address on a WAN router, quote, A command was given to the router that caused it to send messages to all the other routers in the WAN, which resulted in all of them recomputing their adjacency and forwarding tables, and during this recomputation process, the routers were unable to correctly forward packets.
1: Yeah, so when the outage was going on, I actually tweeted out that uh, Azure was basically down... And I would be taking bets on what the cause was, and then I ran a poll saying, is it BGP? Is it DNS? Is it just Microsoft being a clown show as usual? Or, you know, was it an, an automation problem? And turns out it was BGP, which was the one that I'd actually said it was going uh-huh. to be. So if I'm radiating, irritating smugness at this point, you're dead, right? That's exactly <laughs> I what I can feel it. Um, yeah. <laughs> For a global outage, there's only two things it can be. Glo- uh, has to be DNS or BGP. And from what I saw, Azure was resolving fine, so it had to be a BGP outage, even though, yes, the theory that it is always DNS is viable. I just don't think there was this one. Uh, people sent me, Martin Schoenbecker and a few other people on Twitter noted that the BGP AS was being hi- uh, flipped around. Uh-huh. And then today, Thousand Eyes posted a blog post about it showing how the BGP flapped around and what it was caused by. Uh, props to uh, Microsoft for coming up with a response fairly quickly and posting uh, a post-mortem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the link will be in the show notes indicating what it was that actually happened and um, you know, basically owning up, I think, to some extent about what actually went wrong. But the Thousand Eyes um, blog post makes a good reading to say this is what we saw from the internet yeah
0: both links in the show notes if you want to get more details it's interesting because i've also been seeing on twitter uh, a lot of talk about microsoft teams kind of uh, eating slack's lunch here and i'm thinking like you know a global outage when all of your business services including email collaboration is out maybe you want to diversify a little instead of putting all of your productivity <laughs> eggs in one basket <laughs> yeah. just, just something to think about or, uh-
1: uh, or alternatively you know keep in mind that microsoft is the only company that charges you to fix the vulnerabilities that it created for you uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, i think other slack's got a problem too it's part of salesforce and there seems to be some sort of challenges over there it got so large and so successful that salesforce bought it for i think it was 19 billion dollars you know three four five years ago and it was supposed to have much more innovation and and things coming to it and it seems to sort of have stagnated so i'm not necessarily convinced that uh slack is going to be a long-term vision going forward but i know that team certainly is not it's it's awful yeah
0: well it's doing gangbuster so you may not like it but other people are <laughs> buying it so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> i they, wouldn't bet uh, against teams
1: <laughs> people pay for microsoft office as well, well they, yeah, i mean there's no accounting for taste but uh,
0: nice. people are still buying and then
1: they pay for microsoft defender to keep microsoft office safe right
0: <laughs> <you know? laughs> <laughs> it'd be a shame if something happened to this outlook server yeah viewer. two lots yeah. of revenue yeah. get oh, you twice yeah.
1: yes be a shame if Microsoft Office works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, we're going to talk about Intel's financial results later, but uh, first news, Intel is reportedly sunsetting its networking business. This is according to a story in Tom's Hardware. The article quotes CEO Pat Gelsinger saying, Intel is no longer going to invest in its networking business. It will continue to support existing customers. Uh, you may remember that Intel acquired ASIC maker Barefoot Networks back in 2019, and Barefoot makes the Tofino programmable ASIC for Ethernet switches.
1: This is really disappointing in a lot of different ways Broadcom has been enormously successful and producing networking ASICs and come to dominate the market and there's a couple of other players out there in a minor way Marvell uh, obviously Nvidia's got the chipsets that it got through the Mellanox acquisition. But there's really a – and Cisco has its own ASICs as well, of course.
0: Sure, there's still plenty juniper. of room in the yeah. market. It's,
1: yeah, it's just such a vast market for Ethernet switches that there's still plenty of room for innovation here. And Intel acquired barefoot, particularly to get into networking switches and saying that it was going to. And the switch IPU, you know, Intel calls the DPU the IPU, was a natural synergy. If you were buying Intel IPUs, maybe they could sell the switches with them and create some sort of super, you know – out-of-standard advancement there that would made it viable for people to want them, and they're not. But then we'll talk about Intel's financial results later on, um, P4 will continue on probably as part of the DPU program, it's been v- very widely used, it's an open standard, uh, and maybe the only thing that remains out of the Barefoot experiment, um, which is probably not a bad thing, it seems to be a workable version of um, OpenFlow, if you go back all that sort of a way. But um, yeah, very sad, very disappointed to see it. And when I go to Intel's website, I note that they don't list the Ethernet switches in the main page, but it's still there on the website at this point.
0: So. Yeah, so the thing about uh, Tofino was that it was a programmable ASIC as opposed to you know what you get from Broadcom as fixed function. Uh, so that was kind of innovative to have that programmable ASIC, but it was also a very niche audience for want- needing to be able to program the packet processing pipeline. There's not a lot of companies looking to get that deep uh, into their Ethernet, so it was always sort of a niche product. I think I'm, I, Intel probably had grander plans for it, but for what? Well, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, they just couldn't, I guess, really make a go of it. I wonder if they would spin it out, maybe instead of just killing it. Because I would hate to see this technology go away. I don't know really what their plans are, but it's it is I kind of a, a sad end <laughs> for what was an yeah. innovative product.
1: It just doesn't. Yeah, you know, I think the industry's basically decided that you know ASIC small pipelines, you know, with minimal amounts of programmable um, forwarding is okay. So Broadcom's won that market, you know.
0: It's always back to, you know, do you you want the smarts uh, in the overlay or do you want it in the hardware? And uh, so far overlay is winning. Mm -hmm, I think so.
1: Um, And also that the feature functionality that we once thought we were going to put into switches is moving to the edge. So we're doing it more and more in, you know, sassy yeah, you know, is doing a lot of this in the data center you'll see dpus rise to make up a lot of the functionality that you saw um and also smart NICs more generally and you know there's no more, less need to do this in the switch i think the industry's turned away from the idea that the router and the switch should be anything but a forwarding engine that's slowly evolving over time and everything else will be done over the top somehow mm.
0: All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. We'll move on. Uh, The U.S. Justice Department says it has taken down the Hive ransomware site and recovered digital keys used by criminals to lock up victims' data. The FBI says its own hackers were able to infiltrate Hive systems. They surveilled the gang and alerted victims. Uh, For example, Reuters reports that the FBI gave decryption keys to a Texas school district, saving them from a $5 million ransomware payment and a Louisiana hospital. Uh, Law enforcement in Germany and the Netherlands also seized servers belonging to the gang, although at present no arrests have been made.
1: Yeah, the interesting part about this is just how coordinated this was. This wasn't just a takedown in the U.S. This was a global coordination, mm-hmm. as far as I understand yep. it, although the Reuters thing pretty much only focuses on the U.S. part. Um, the, and it was widely believed that taking down Hive wasn't really possible because they were so distributed and working in so many countries, and they would often stop and disappear and then come back. And so for them to be able to get to this organization has been would be quite is quite a win and I think the police forces and the security services should be very proud of themselves at this point to take down what would be a company of people who are effectively working between the gaps of international law and getting away with it for a very long time they're talking 100 million they think is much they've got in ransom
0: right yep Yeah, Hive was doing very well, and I'm sure they can pop up somewhere else in a jurisdiction that may be willing to look the other (laughs) way, so I wouldn't necessarily count this ransomware gang out, but it is, I think, a win both for uh, U.S. and international law enforcement. Um, Although I also read up on this, ransomware apparently is uh, down. It dropped. uh, Ransomware payments dropped by 40% in 2022 as more victims are refusing to pay up. So uh, 2022 ransomware totals were estimated to be $457 million last year. Compared to 766 million in 2021, so still lucrative, but maybe less lucrative than it was before.
1: Uh, I've got to hope that people are putting in better backup systems to recover from ransomware. There's been enough
0: lessons learned, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) And I think insurance companies are also like, we're not going to insure you until we see how your backup and DR systems are, and they need to be up to snuff. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. We
1: talked about insurance. I think just the whole profile ransomware has been going for what five, six years now. And we really are seeing the point where it's become known that once you ransomware it, if you can't get your data back, there are companies that just won't come Uh back if you can't Uh go back to a pre-ransomware state. I think that puts the fear of, you know, the spirits that be into people and who will then actually want to invest. Because if there's one thing, it's one thing for IT to go out for a day or two and then come back once you can recover. Quite another thing for it to go out and never come back and have to
0: be starting from nothing. I think it's the fear of the insurance adjusters that uh, puts backup and DR back on the map, <laughs> frankly. <laughs>
1: Probably both, but okay, you know. <laughs> Let's go with both. I'll go All right, with we'll both. go with both. <laughs> all
0: right, uh, now we're going to dive into uh, all the financials. We're going to start off with Intel, as we teased earlier. Um, uh, recently, we reported on Intel's debut of the new Sapphire Rapids uh, Xeon CPUs. Intel's back with its uh, Q4 and full-year financial results, and the top line is Intel would love it if you bought more Xeons. Uh, for the quarter intel revenues of 14 billion were down 32% and the company lost 661 million dollars in q4 uh, for the full year revenues were 63 billion down 20% with a net income of 8 billion down 60%
1: just yeah so intel's just been uh, seems to have just written down everything to be down 30% in a quarter year over year <laughs> From a company like Intel, which is normally seen as a stable bellwether, dividend-paying, uh-huh. like keep in mind that in this quarter its earnings per share was 10 cents. Oof. That's down 92 percent. So it's down from a dollar to 10 cents because the margin fell from 55 percent to 43 percent. So any way that you look at this for a business which is supposed to be continually succeeding a bellwether of the US tech industry this is a a horrible horrible quarter and of course you might imagine the share price got absolutely crucified Um, but more importantly what I don't see is anybody sort of calling for Pat Gelsinger to get the boot because um, it's probably still in his uh, summer period you know when you you bring in somebody new who's going to put the company back together Um, it seems that investors continue to have faith that he will be the person to be able to turn Intel around and if not him then potentially nobody but Intel's share price fell from $30 um, down to $26 which is a significant that's a 12% uh, fall and investors are very concerned that Intel may not be able to pay a dividend uh, which is very much a part of its key value the the shareholders that own are betting on the dividends from a company like Intel so this is pretty bad um if intel has deep sixed a bunch of products taken a whole you know written off a bundle of losses in one quarter and decided to just bring it all in Mm -hmm. like you know Mm -hmm. let's just do it all in once get get all the bad news out in one Mm -hmm. which would be a fairly consistent strategy we'll be you know we'll see in the quarters to come
0: well first quarter guidance for its new fiscal year is anticipating continued earnings losses so Uh, Not Mm. super bright on the horizon, but yeah, I think it's probably a good strategy to get as much bad news out as you can at the end of the year, since it's going to be bad anyway. Uh, I guess I would ask Mm. when Pat Gelsinger's compensation also starts to go down as these quarters rack up (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing never, but... It's a nice arrangement. Eighty
1: million a year is not a bad package. A bad really. package. Um, it's also interesting that Intel's failure is coming up against the back of, you know, uh, increased revenues for the silicon makers, right? So if you go out and look at all of the other silicon fabs like TSMC, all of the other design companies, ARM, Qual- uh, NVIDIA and that. They're all doing much, much better than Intel. So it's you can objectively argue here that Intel is a failing company at this point, um, although there's still plenty of time to turn it around. It is, of course, a, a darling of the U.S. government um, <clears throat> and is a key part of the technology strategy that's been put yep. forward so far. Yep. So I doubt it'll go away, no, but, no. you know, uh, consumer PCs aren't going to go up. People aren't in the current environment going and buying more PCs Intel's not exposed to mo- to smartphones or mobile, in that sense, um, and sales for the data centers are down. We'll talk more about Microsoft Azure's results in a minute, but the big clouds are actually slowing down their purchases, and that's bad for Intel. So it's like every way you look for Intel, it's a bit grim. Yeah.
0: Well, I did. There are a few bright spots in the in the uh, results. Network and edge business was up eleven percent for the year, with almost nine billion in revenue. Uh, and Foundry Services, which is a new business, is up fourteen percent for the year, but that's still yet to be a billion dollar business, so not really significant at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: still it's nice to see a few positives here and there. You're looking hard
1: to find those, but yeah, <laughs> I'm digging right. deep. I'm digging deep. Dig deep. <laughs> <laughs> Dick deep. <laughs> All
0: right, uh, moving on to Microsoft, they announced second quarter earnings for their fiscal year 2023 revenues were $52.7 billion, up 2%, and net income was $16.4 billion. Uh, breaking out by sector, cloud revenue was up 22%. Office commercial products were up 7%. Office consumer was down 2%. Windows OEM revenue down 39%, and device revenues down
1: 39%. <laughs> I love your quote here. You should read that one out. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> the Satya you Nadella know, Okay, so, yeah, so CEO, uh, I yeah, looked at
0: the earnings call. Uh, CEO Satya Nadella said, just as we saw customers accelerate their digital spending during the pandemic, we are now seeing them optimize that spend. And I'm reading optimize as spending less.
1: and <laughs> <Yeah>, that's exactly <laughs> uh, that is backed up I'm, by no. what the analysts are talking about, the key topic that was discussed by the <laughs> CEO the Translation analyst. Service is that- <laughs> here. <laughs> Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's pretty readable, I think, in this case. <laughs> Optimize is less readable. Really? <laughs> uh, what they're saying is Azure growth is slowing, and it's unexpectedly slowing. So well, Azure was was expected to be continuing to grow at 30 to 35%, but it's now at 24% growth. That's still growth, right? It's still not. But the growth, its forward guidance for growth is also 24%. So there's no, that would sort of indicate, you know, the the size of off-prem cloud computing is what it is. Um, it's still growing 24% per quarter, which is just still amazing, you know, off a $20 billion business, but it's not growing at 35%, which it was last quarter or last right. year. So the general belief seems to be that off-prem cloud computing will continue to grow but um the willingness of enterprise it is now slowing so in my view is in general, the systems that have migrated to the cloud are actually easy projects, mm-hmm. so people can learn, minimize the impact, operations have a bit of a play, you know, get you know. And sure, there's a lot of headline projects and marketing dollars being spent about, you know, foo, 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 you know, all the, all the, some sort of highfalutin success, so you can put it on your resume that you're awesome. But I think you know, new projects that have started in the off-prem cloud, we you know where those are out there. We know that easy projects have been migrated, but I think now that people have got some experience a lot of enterprise idea going like wow it's expensive out there wow, this is really hard. I'm struggling to find the ROI to move these. Yes, they might be better off in an off-prem cloud, but I'm really struggling to justify the ROI necessary to migrate them. And then the additions are so much higher pricing, and that is slowing down the growth in the off-prem cloud. And of course, the backdrop here is the geopolitical issues and the global recession that's currently being predicted. I think you'll see people pulling back. And I wouldn't be surprised if that growth shrinks fairly rapidly over the next four quarters. I don't think there's a lot of, you know, people are still moving to cloud, 20% growth is still an awesome business, but I think it'll get much harder for Azure and AWS to keep getting more and more and more growth.
0: Yeah, if you uh, read the earnings call transcripts, uh, Satya Nadella continuously emphasizes the fact that they need to help customers uh, understand the value of public cloud. So I think uh, that does line up with your analysis that (laughs) enterprises have moved to the cloud and realized this is effing expensive and effing complicated. And so, you know, yeah. why, why am I doing this again? Because someone explained it to me. Uh, so, yeah, all the cloud <laughs> providers, I think, are going to have to grapple with that as enterprises do look to figure out how they can get actual value out of moving to the cloud. Uh, although, <laughs> here comes OpenAI to sprinkle some sugar on that. Not uh, Nadalia is also yeah, right. talking about the partnership with OpenAI and said, we will soon add support for ChatGPT, enabling customers to use it in their own applications mm-hmm. for the first time. He's positioning AI as a platform shift that is going to lead to more of that value that enterprises are trying to look for from the public cloud so uh, maybe AI will save the public cloud.
1: And that's not entirely illogical if you think that you've got a lot of CPUs and a lot of storage and a lot of network bandwidth that you want to shift in one way or the other. <laughs> and what is it that AI needs?
0: <laughs> lots of CPUs, of lots that, of storage, right? lots of bandwidth, <laughs> lots of data. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and even better, you can add GPUs to it that enterprises would have struggled to buy. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I think you'll see a lot of off-prem clouds really, really promoting their AI something, something, somethings, and enterprise IT will be thinking, oh, that's, you know, um, that's probably the way to do it. And then, of course, we'll see the uh, on-prem versions of it come out. And then we'll see customers stuck, you know, too many choices, hard to pick. And so they'll choose nothing.
0: Yeah. Two years from now, we should check back and see if uh, people are talking about how to maximize the value of AI now that they bought into it. Is it actually helping them? I don't know. We'll mm. see. i color me skeptical, but.
1: Yeah, we'll put that in the spreadsheet. <laughs> <right>. um, yeah, <laughs> our <yeah>. forecasting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, links in the show notes if you want to check out the Microsoft results. We'll move on. We're covering Extreme next. Uh, first, uh, the CFO announced their resignation to take a job elsewhere. The news came the same day the company released their Q2 23 results.
1: Yeah, bad news here. The company produced um, a really good quarter, uh, up 13% year over year with net income of 18 million, which is up 35% from this time last year. It's just interesting to think how small Extreme is. Compared to Juniper or HP or, or Cisco sometimes, right. $318 million is is, you know, but great that they're up 13% year over year and actually up on their net income after tax and everything. Mm-hmm. But then their CFO resigned to pursue a new opportunity at a privately held software company, and the stock price promptly dropped 20%. Uh, this is... This is one of these stock market things where um, I think the trope that I hear a lot of people say is buy the rumor, sell the news. So if you hear a rumor that the stock's going to go up, you, you go and you buy the stock. And then if you actually get hard news that something like the CFO is leaving, then you sell mm-hmm. I think that's what's actually happening here. Because many investors believe that the CFO has the best grip on the financial position of the company. The CEO spends a lot of time out in the boonies, you know, doing stuff, and usually he's like cheering the company on and saying how awesome it is, like, you know, when was the last time a CEO said, this company's a pile of junk and our products are trash, and you just know what they say, right? But if the CFO heads off, then it's most often seen as a signal that something might be really wrong inside the company. So, for example, if you think about in the crypto crashes that we saw around us, it was when the CFOs of you know FTX and and Coinbase and all of those started to head out the door. That was when things got really bad because then people looked because CFOs are a brand, uh-huh. right? They are a personal brand, and they get hired because they were the CFO of this company and the next one. So they don't want to be there when the when the fall happens because then they could their brand gets damaged. So a lot of the times you see it. So um, it's it's gonna be tough. Keep in mind that Extreme's share price was also up forty nine percent year over year. They're one of the few tech companies that has not fallen. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them have sort of fallen by thirty to forty percent, like Cisco, Intel, so forth. So it's a shame to see them get naff just because the CFO wants to go off and play in pri- private companies. So some sort of startup would be my guess. So
0: uh, well, let me speculate on the counter narrative here. Uh, CFO is mm-hmm. going out on a high note. This is a great quarter for Extreme. Extreme has been doing well. And I think the CFO has probably been extraordinarily busy over the last few years as Extreme has, you know, sort of acquired <laughs> its way uh, with lots of acquisitions, lots of yeah. products, lots mm. of uh, financial, probably organization that had to go on to make this happen that. He's probably just really tired. <laughs> Maybe a little yeah. startup would be nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame him for leaving. I agree with you. You know, all those acquisitions of VEA, Broadcom, you know, Wi-Fi.
0: Zebra you know, and all that the, sort of the stuff. Wi-Fi no stuff, question. yeah. So he's the, yeah, yeah. been through a lot of financial, uh, having to oversee the finances of this yeah. company, trying to put itself together and mm. also make a mad dash to be a billion dollar organization. So I'm sure it was a high stress yeah. environment. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I definitely think yeah. so.
0: It's just, a, and kind
1: of like the fact that he's was leaving. So I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with Extreme. There's no evidence of that. It's just that when a CFO leaves, it's usually seen as a bad sure. thing. And so the share price got. Understandable. So I, I note the share price has actually bounced back quite a bit. So, you know, Maybe just a it blip. might have gotten sold down 20%, but it's bounced back, you know, uh, another 10%. So it fell to, uh, I don't know, $15 and it's now back up around $17. $18 now. So, like I said, nothing, nothing long term. Okay. People are just selling the news. Of course. Yep. They're getting out because they think it might be the right time to lock the story. Doing in a little tea, tea, re- tea leaf reading, maybe, yeah. Making yeah. A guess. Buy the rumor, sell the hey. news.
0: All right. Our last story for this episode uh, Nokia reported fourth quarter and full year results for the quarter. Nokia had sales of 7.4 billion euros, up 16%. For the full year, Nokia had net sales of almost 24 billion euros. Uh, and Greg, something jumped out at you in their results.
1: Yeah, the most interesting thing, I think, to us here is the enterprise net sales grew 49% year over year in constant currency in Q4. Wow! So, um, constant currency means uh, there was so much currency fluctuation going on this year, they tried to rebalance it into what's current constant currency. It's definitely the fashion this quarter for the analysts to report uh, in constant currency. But mm-hmm. that is an extraordinary gain. They've got 21% growth in the full year of 2022. For, for the enterprise. I wouldn't have thought yeah for the enterprise. Now, part of that is 5G, private 5G, but a lot of that is selling their enterprise switches into enterprise companies. So they're having good success there. And that's very pleasing. I think we still need a diversity of vendors in networking and that shift that we saw, you know, 10 years ago towards just a single vendor supply, you know, the Cisco dominating the market and then the rest of the companies. I think this is good for the industry. And, you know, people now have choices um, and solutions that are tailored to what they want to do. But I do believe it's not just Ethernet switches and WAN routers. It's also private 5G, which is something that other companies don't have.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the biggest part of the company is still the, their mobile networking group, um, but uh, the network infrastructure group did show better growth uh, for the year. Net sales for IP networks grew 11%, optical network sales grew 21%. Yeah, so Nokia does seem to be winning some customers uh, on the enterprise side and in the networking side. Just the mobile network. They seem to be, yeah. yeah. That's,
1: the, that's the suggestion is that customers are buying those enterprise products that we've done some shows with them about, um, which is, you know, exactly what they wanted, I'm sure. Probably.
0: All right. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stick around uh, for our sponsored conversation with Fortinet when we talk about its 40 recon security service that's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes Podcast. We're talking security reconnaissance with sponsor Fortinet. We're going to drill into Forty Recon. This is a service that can provide critical information personalized for your organization about potential threats to company assets, employees, and customers. Our guest is Corinne Chopin. She is VP of Cybersecurity Solutions and Services at Fortinet. Corinne, welcome to the podcast. And you can just give us some background quickly on what is Forty Recon.
2: Well, in Fortinet, we make complex look simple, meaning if it's 40 recon, it helps in early reconnaissance phase of the attack. Um, It's basically scan you like an attacker will do at the reconnaissance phase and give you an insight to how do you look from the outside. So we identify potential threat, we look for uh, compromise vulnerabilities, everything that you can actually pitch and you know fix. Social media platform, mobile app platform, darknet, deep web sources, everything and anything that you can think about to be used by attacker, we will look at you through those, lens and give you the context.
1: Now, when you say all that, right, the first time I, we talked about this, I thought, oh, that's just like a pen test, but it's not because a pen test says, I'm going to you know, get some people who are uh, practiced or experienced in uh, hacking your site and they're going to try and attack you your, your hit your attack services and get through. This is similar, but very, very different in the sense that you're saying you're scanning the dark web and deep web services sources and seeing emerging threats there, and then you're able to automate that and then hit my site and say, "Oh, are you vulnerable to this? Is that how it works?
2: The similar thing with pen testing is it will yeah. still provide you with budget justification. And it mm. will help you find <laughs> weak points before exploitation. So let's get that aside. There is some similarity, mm. but this is very different because, in addition to just point things out to you, it is give you strategic and comprehensive view across multiple domains. And with mm. the expansion of the attack surface today and you know, attacks being involved through supply chain and through social engineering, that view is really, really valuable. Uh, for for organization today. And it's also uh, continuously monitoring you. So if you think about Mm -hmm. pen testing, and I'm going to be really, really nice here, you may have done it twice a year. If you're really good once a quarter because you needed to justify budget for the next quarter or say how good you are in protecting the company. But in general... And a pen test is only (laughs) as
1: good as the people doing it. Correct. Right. And that that varies a lot. You know, the first time you might've had the A team from the pen test company and the second time you might've had the B team. And then the third time out, they're like, they're off looking for new customers and the A team and the B team are long gone, you know. So I'm curious,
0: one of the things you mentioned about this is, uh, two things actually, one was the dark web. I want to find out, you know, why I need to care about the dark web and also brand protection. Why, how is brand protection a, a threat vector?
2: Okay, so we were talking about, you know, threat vectors in general and what people usually think they need to do. And it has to do with unpatched devices, misconfiguration assets. Those are the normal thing that cybersecurity team would look for. Uh, What attackers are doing today, they're using you on both sides. They're looking at you, are you a good target to be attacked and they're also looking at you. Are you a good target to be used in an attack? So if you hmm. think about uh, phishing attack, a lot of the time they will spin up a website or social media account, and they will be using brands. Like think about retail. I think eighty percent of sales in U.S. are done between October and January. If they spin up fake account, if they get insight into your install base and, you know, spam them with email, they can get password information, credit card information from your customers, but also they use it for your employees. Uh, mm. And most organizations don't regularly monitor mobile apps, stores, similars registered domain, etc. 4D Recon will do that for you. So you're protected mm. from both sides.
0: So if there's some cyber gang out there trying to imitate my retail brand site uh, or put a fake app that has my company's name up on an app store, that's the kind of thing you'll pick up, which I, as a security professional, might not have realized I needed to be looking for.
2: Yes. And we're also taking it down for you. So mm-hmm. the the offering is a combination of technology with advanced machine learning and automation uh, to spin a lot of stuff fast. But there is also human element that is involved. And as you said, a team. It's it's very critical uh, who is monitoring those and who is able to negotiate the takedown services. This is, brings right. me to your other question, which is why do why do I care about dark web? Um, well, oh, if you've Dr. got to Ar- say that
1: right. It's dark web
2: <laughs> sorry <Need> the, echo <laughs> the on there. dark dark
1: dark the dark corner
2: web. of <laughs> the dark web the <laughs> invite only vip portion of the dark web uh, <laughs>
1: not <laughs> well, exactly but comes hey. comes complete with police monitoring and secret <laughs> services all the fun stuff yeah
2: i cannot talk about this part of our business uh, <laughs> But if, if you go back and think about, you know, attackers, they have bosses too, and they have KPI, they KPI tied <laughs> to revenue, they have to bring money in pretty fast. Uh, so there is the obvious topics like ransomware, which you know, there is a clear path. Uh, but they're also doing other stuff. So if they're, you know, collecting your data or stole credential, they can use them themselves. But what we're seeing is that actually leaked credential, or compromised, you know, VPN credential, mm. the top item for sale. On the dark net. And uh, by actively monitoring those, the element of time is really very critical because, as I said, KPI is time to revenue, so they're trying to sell them really, really fast. By continuously yeah. monitoring this and catching it, you can actually negotiate buying them back and prevent them from being sold outside. So this is why the dark web is And a pen is test wouldn't
1: uncover those things. It wouldn't discover a copied website you know, using a domain name
0: you know, variation, it wouldn't... Or a list of my, you know, login credentials for sale uh, somewhere. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That well, sort of stuff. Correct. Correct. It's, it's, it's more traditional. Uh, what, you know, old server you have, one, you know, orphan server you have. Can I kind of scan and give you an asset inventory? Is your engineering team by mistake expose a production server to the internet? Never done it, was in the engineering side just okay. because we're on the record here.
0: When you're monitoring the dark web, do you ever also encounter a chatter like them exchanging, you know, hey, this is a great target because X, Y, Z kind of thing? Like what kind of other information are you finding out there?
2: Well, without naming names, I can actually give you some some example of dark net monitoring and, and the importance of the human touch in it. Because, you know, you have to build trust. And I have to be honest, sometimes when we go to those sites, it's like eight different of us and two attackers, so <laughs> you have some fun there too. Uh, but you know, there, there were customers that we discovered some, you know, P L L, basically millions of records that were, you know, advertised for sale on an invite-only VIP dark dark net mm-hmm. hacker forums. Um, the customer thought that they were actually belonged to a prior breach and that they were just repackaged and resold, and he was always. A Already patched against them, but we could we were able to provide them evidence that it was shared with us through the attackers of the age of the data, including screenshot um, and mm. and how they got in, which is pretty interesting to have those conversation. And attackers are you know they're techy as well. well so there's, if
1: you- there's multiple advantages there. One is I know what you know if the, if you're at the situation where they're trying to hold you to ransom and say we're demanding information, mm-hmm. you can find know if they've actually got the data or not. Okay, and then you could start to make qualitative decisions around how you react and what you tell your customers uh, and how you may have to go and report to public authorities. Because now, you know, more. you've got multiple sources of data saying, yes, we've got the canaries going off. We see the firewalls. We've got the seam logs showing us what they did. And we've got this public space, what they're actually doing, you know, in the dark web, as, as we say, you know, what they're doing with it. I think that's really different that because that's where it really differs from pen testing and from vulnerability scans and threat intelligence, which is sort of passive defense it compared to this.
2: Yeah, here, here you actually see the full flow. You're you're spot on. So you you will get through this investigation and engagement in you know with those attackers, you get the, the process. So they were saying, okay, it was a phishing campaign. They got one of your employees in marketing, you know, credential. They were able to use it to get into your CRM. So when you do the cleanup and the mitigation, you actually know the flow and mm. it allows you to train the people going back to if it's starting to a phishing campaign, you do need to refresh your training and mm. it helps you, you know, understand the flow between your system and segments better. And as you said, maybe add more technologies that will fit their reconnaissance phase or will help you identify yeah. unauthorized behavior like deception. So it's it's a great tool to evaluate your entire security stack and the interaction between the product from an attacker perspective of you kind of utilization, what they will do mm-hmm. and how we're successful. How they were
1: successful. I like the plausible deniability. I can say I can go to my insurance company or go stand up in a court of law and say here is the fact here's the information that I had and this is the decision that I made and if you've got all this information the court's not going to rule against you right or the insurance company can't not pay out because you can say we have this information to show that we our systems were working correctly we were defeated by an unknown attack or whatever right
2: now so I know I how said. to motivate you. I'm motivated by doing good to the universe and making sure that everyone is safe. But hey. No, I just yeah, I just
1: for a lot of companies, I just say to them, look, you don't have to be impenetrable. You just have to be um, uh, unblameable. And that's what I'm looking for, is tools that do that. Because that's what actually is the reality at the end of the day. Um, we yeah. talked a lot about um this idea that we do also use pen testing vulnerability scans and threat intelligence services. This the, the idea of the 40 Recon is it's different. It's not the same. We touched on that a little bit. But I wanted to understand more about the proactive stuff. You are actually saying that you're providing remediation recommendations. How does that work?
2: Yeah, so let's start from, from the beginning, going back to A-Team and the long process of pen testing. And, and in general, the fact that you do it once or twice a year. This is a service that we offer. It has three different components and it's kind of a plug and play. So there is mm. no effort needed. There is a straightforward portal that ha- help you cut through the noise. So we will tell you, you have 20,000 vulnerabilities, but we're also able to prioritize the one that you should care the most about based on the data of what is actually exploited in the wild today. And then yeah. we have a mix of people of technology. So there is AI that, that is trained on probably the largest, most diverse data set. That will help us sift to the thing, but FortiGuard Lab Security Export also enhance the offering constantly, and they will do a lot of the negotiation. So we are very respectful for both, and there is a lot of transparency to the organization itself. Their recommendation for a mediation activity are based on full flows. So we can tell you go and you know, update or patch those services or add virtual patching fronting them. But we will also recommend, like we mentioned at the example, you probably want to refresh your training. You probably want to look at your segmentation rule. You probably want to tie in your investigation on your endpoint. Mm. And this will help them, the, the security team as a whole, to improve their security posture start to end against a full stack of attack, not just symptoms which I find to be really valuable because attackers are looking for those gaps. And the more we can help, you know, streamline a flow of prevention, the better the organization is protected for an attack, which by definition is a stream of, you know, tactical events.
1: It's also useful for budget acquisition as well, because if you can show this sort of information to an executive who's, you know, quite often CIOs, the only time they've ever run into security data is when a credit card got hacked, you know. And this is not this is not that. This is not that at all.
2: Oh, you're so right. I should have totally positioned it differently at the beginning to say it's <laughs> yeah. it's not the same for the budget justification. It's better for budget yeah. justification because it gives you more points in your security yeah. stack that you can yeah. justify. Hi boss. Hi boss. Here's,
1: here's, here's 150 errors that, you know, weaknesses we've got in our network, but these are the what these 10 are the ones active today. I need
0: money, yeah. <laughs> and, they're also, kind of, and they're also
2: and they're also on your endpoint, and you also need to talk to your marketing team and improve their, you know, posture yeah, and all yeah, of the yeah. social That's media. Right. Yeah, it's it's a bigger bigger portfolio and bigger budget that you will get. Mm. I because I don't
1: want to don't spend time haggling with people over budget or purchasing. I want to make it so that it's so compelling that they just go, "Yep, yeah, no, we definitely need to do that." Yeah,
2: uh, it's definitely easier to say uh, or to identify or to make a conversation of risk-based prioritization mm-hmm. when you do this. And we actually do offer it as uh, as an assessment. So, you know, organization, or oh, people on this call who really want to see what's going on and figure out how to prioritize their budget for 2023 mm-hmm. and forward. This is really great because you get to get a really good view of where you stand and what you need to prioritize.
1: I want to ask a weird question here. Um, Does this, obviously, this is a Fortinet product. Forty Recon is part of the Forty product, Forty portfolio. Um, And if I've got Fortinet products all through my network, that's one thing. Can I use this product separately as a way to sort of, because it doesn't sound like it has to be embedded in my network, it sounds like something that I could start with and look at and maybe get started with Fortinet, or am I not reading that right?
2: This is uh, an independent offering. Mm -hmm. It's a part of our portfolio to the SOC team that has Mm -hmm. no dependency on anything else that you have from Fortinet. And I actually know organizations who have two different approaches. Some of them will say, actually, whoever is coming to do this evaluation should be a neutral vendor. And then we start stepping in and helping them expand their security and tighten it. And some will use it on a regular basis with us so that you can purchase it as a one-time assessment to see what's going yeah. on, not dependence in anything else from us. You can make it a, an active offering within your stack of security. Again, doesn't have to have anything else from Fortinet. It will work better by definition if you have integration between the product and other parts of your security posture. Going back yeah. to, we do give you remediation recommendation and the automation of that flow buys you time. And we all come here against So if I had a Fortinet SD-WAN time
1: or uh, you know, I was running 40 net firewalls around the perimeter of the data center if I was using, you know, 40 net experience monitoring, all that stuff. It would be obviously the the, the feedback loop would be tighter and gooder, but yes, it does not not a requirement to use this tool. For, so if people are listening, you don't actually have to be a 40 customer to take 40 advantage of the 40 tools.
2: But you will be significantly better positioned if you thirst and share all of your threat intelligence in a way that allow Mm -hmm. you to detect and enforce across your entire stack.
0: Uh, So Corinne, very quickly, uh, you you mentioned at the outset, this is all about uh, sort of a continuous uh, service or product. So how would this fit into my sort of daily operational tasks? How does it fit into my security workflows that I'm going through every day?
2: So if if you think about security in buckets this is probably the product that will give you the the most saving on time and uh, money investment because it fits right fronting everything else it is running constantly not intrusion non-intrusion to any of your processes and you will get alerts all the time uh, that are obviously synthesized so it's not a lot of noise but alerts that are dedicated for you in a timely manner and you can get into the tool and decide do you ask a takedown service from us do you want us to negotiate something for you in the dark market so think about it as an operating tool that is constantly scanning you and giving you input to say this just happened this you know just spinned out we've just seen this social website you know coming up with with your brand uh, and, and it helps you stop, protect, remediate that before an attacker can actually utilize it to go into your organization. Now, there are cases when people run this and we discovered that there already been attacked, like the example that I shared where the credentials were already you know, available in the dark market. So right. it can help in both prevent early before they even get in and then prevent from whatever was stolen to being used against you in a flow of an attack.
0: Alright, well, this does bring us to the end of the conversation. I feel like there's more to be said. So if folks want to get more information about 4 Recon, Corinne, where should they go?
2: 40Net.com uh, for products, 4D Recon. And there you can also see, not only here, uh, the different uh, capability of the product and the awesome UI.
0: All right, that's fortinet.com slash products slash 40recon. There'll also be more links in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, Thank you, Corinne, for being with us. And thanks once again to Fortinet for being a sponsor. If you enjoyed the show, there are many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog and our newsletter. It's all at packetpushes.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.